Welcome, everybody. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke 7. Luke 7. Just a precious, precious passage today when we begin to see the heart of repentance and the joy found in forgiveness and being reconciled with our great God. So we get to look at it today, this issue of forgiveness, and I want to uh, read the passage. We're in Luke 7, and we're going from verses 36 all the way through 50. So I want to read basically the whole story, and then I want you, as I read, to keep an eye out for kind of the three major characters of the story, because we're going to look at this story through these three characters. Luke chapter 7, verse 36, I'll read the passage in its entirety, 36 to 50, and then I'll pray. The word of God says this, one of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him, answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. Let me pray. Father, take your word. Help us to see the preciousness of forgiveness. 
Help us, I pray, to humbly see ourselves in this story. Figure out where we fit. I pray that there would be repentance that springs forth throughout this room. In my heart. And in the heart of everyone here. So that we might see you. We might be refreshed by you. We might be with you. And we might give you away. As long as you give us breath. So please. Rip away the barriers of sin that are gripping our hearts. Set us free into your arms. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Reconciliation is a big word for a wonderful thing. It's really good when you feel separated from someone to all of a sudden feel closer than ever before. You've experienced that probably at some time in your life. You misunderstood somebody, somebody wronged you, there was a transaction of of conversation, there was a forgiveness, there was an embrace, and there was a, yes, this drama is over, or this fracture has been mended, there's a sense of celebration for reconciliation. Now, when we talk right now for this entire sermon about the issue that Jesus lays before us, it is the issue of forgiveness. But why is forgiveness? That is the washing clean of the heart, the removal of shame and guilt, the being declared not guilty even though you really were. Why is that such good news? It's good news because if you receive the forgiveness of God humbly, you are reconciled to God himself. You get this? Just as if you've done something wrong to a child or a spouse or a coworker, there's a, a distance, there's a separation. The beautiful news of this message is that when you're forgiven, you're reconciled to God. And that's what every heart wants and every heart longs for. And that right there is good news. I remember going into Wendy's the other day. Coming back from a trip in Tampa where I was with the uh, church planting network that we're a part of. And as I was traveling back, I I jump into uh, Wendy's and I had to sit and wait for my fries. They weren't ready. It's fine. Just sitting there, working on my phone, you know, just minding my own business, kind of looking around. And then uh, the lady behind the counter, she has a separate bag. I had my sandwich and. She had a separate bag, and she brought it up, and she just laid it right there. And she says, now those right there, those are hot fries. I mean, like, she was exuberant. And I was like, now that's good news, isn't it? And she was like, yes, it is. You got that right. Here's your fries. You know, she was just elated. And I was like, there was zero barrier between us right there. Like, I knew exactly what she was talking about, like, That's good news that I don't have cold fries, and I'm about ready to down them. She was excited for me, and I'm pretty excited myself. And this is what Jesus offers us right here. Nothing to be ashamed of. If God gives us eyes to see, everyone is in agreement, whether they admit it or not, that being reconciled to God, being with him, 
having no distance between us, but being in intimate fellowship with him is good news. And that's why Jesus is so passionate to make sure that we understand how we receive forgiveness, how he gives it. And so we need to look at three main characters. Who might the three main characters of this story be? Any ideas? Pharisee, that's one. Jesus, that's a good one. And the woman, that's right. Remember, you're in church, a Christian church. Jesus is always a safe answer, okay? So we got three main characters, Pharisees, Jesus, and the woman. We're going to go in this order. Pharisee, the woman, and end with Jesus, okay? Now, these are the three uh, aspects of forgiveness that Jesus wants to teach us, but he teaches us through three different perspectives. Perspective one is the Pharisee. We're going to call him the shamer. The one who incites shame. And what is the lesson about forgiveness that Jesus wants us to see? It is that many times we don't see our need for forgiveness. The second person we see is the woman. The woman found weeping, wiping Jesus' feet with her tears and with this precious ointment. She is the shamed If the Pharisees are the shamers, she is the shamed. Because what does it say about her twice in the passage? She was a sinner. Do you see that in the passage? Verse 37 and verse 39. When something's repeated in the Bible, it's usually for emphasis, especially in a short passage like this. And what is Jesus teaching us about forgiveness? That repentance must precede forgiveness. But if you have a shamer, and if you have one who is shamed, you also have one who conquers shame. We're going to see the conqueror of shame. And his message loud and clear is that forgiveness has been won. And forgiveness is mine to give, Jesus says. And so let's look at it together. The first one, we're going to look at the Pharisee. And he, his name is Simon, and he is a shamer. It says in verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. Jesus regularly did these things when he was asked. He would go and eat with people. I rarely turn down a good meal, and I'm glad to see that I have company in Jesus. He just... You want to come and eat meals? Okay, let's do it. Let's go. So he loved to go to these parties, loved to go to weddings, loved to eat with friends and people that would invite him. The opposite of a killjoy, which sadly some people think of when they think of God himself. But he goes to the Pharisee's house, and when we see in verse 37, there's a woman who finds out that he was there, and so she comes and rushes in. We've already heard the story. We'll hear, hear it again. But what I want to hone in on is the Pharisee's response. Look at verse 39. So you see this woman, this woman of the city. That means she is known for her sin. And now the Pharisee in verse 39. Now when the Pharisee, his name is Simon. We're giving him the label of shamer. 
who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, this is what's miraculous. It's not out loud. Thinking in his nugget, we get the inside scoop because Jesus knows what happens between our ears. He says this, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. And Jesus will go on and talk to the Pharisee. What do we begin to see? We begin to see a man who is more aware of someone else's sin than he is of his own. More aware of someone else's need for forgiveness than he is of his own. The Pharisees get a lot of labels. This guy doesn't need to get too bad of a rap. I don't believe he invited Jesus in to try to dupe him and catch him. This doesn't seem to be the the indication of the heart for this Pharisee. This Pharisee wanted to spend time with Jesus. It was just in the spending time with Jesus, all of a sudden he finds himself not liking what he sees. And what does he see? Sees a woman who is known in society as a sinner, touching Jesus' feet. And the Pharisees, they get, they get a rap of, of a legalist. That means taking rules in order to get to God and laying those rules out there. But I think something that is as prominent, if not more prominent, and accurate a characteristic or name for a Pharisee is self-righteous. What does self-righteous mean? You might hear it. You might hear it said. But what does it mean? It means exactly that. That you believe you can make yourself right before God. That any right you do is owing to yourself. Now many people don't think about it in relationship to God. But you hear it all the time. What I have done, what I can do, and it usually comes out in how you think about other people. Look at how bad they are. I would never do that. You ever thought that? Yes, you have. So have I. That's why I can say <laughs> I just know it. It's just how it works. It's the human heart. I would never do that. And that's the seed where bitterness comes up. I would never do that. This is the Pharisee. He misses the fact that were it not for the grace of God, he would be 10,000 times worse. But he is self-righteous, believing that every right thing he does is owing to himself. He would never articulate it that way. But when you begin to be more aware of someone else's sin, and then you begin to label them and talk about them, you are a shamer. You delight in making people seem below you because you're so insecure. You need to feel better about yourself. He's a shamer. And with his words, he wants Jesus to know. Even though it's in his head, there is this, it's almost like he couldn't control it. It was like, good night. This woman is rotten. I cannot believe Jesus is allowing this to happen. And so, in his heart, he shames. Now, 
What's interesting is he doesn't feel shame in this passage. You don't feel shame unless you are guilty. If you know you're guilty of something, then you feel shame. You feel bad. But if you aren't thinking about your guilt but someone else's, you don't feel the shame. That's why being like a Pharisee is so easy. Because it makes you feel better about you. You don't feel like you're bad because someone else is worse. <clears throat> so let's, let's review the tape. The Pharisee focuses in on his or her own righteousness. They are more aware of someone else's sin than they are of their own. And many times they will shame that other person in order that they might not experience shame themselves. Because if this person's bad, I'm not guilty, we're golden. This is the path of the Pharisee. And honestly, this is why it is the soil, self-righteousness is the soil in which gossip grows. It's the soil in which gossip grows. I can't tell you how many times I have had conversations where people around me begin to talk about someone who is not present, not in the room. And they begin to talk about them in a less than favorable light. Let's just say it that way. Sometimes it can be Christianized. Oh, bless them. Watch out for those words. When that comes, it's like, uh-oh. About ready to get some laceration. But it'll be into someone else's heart, not your own. The fertile soil out of which gossip grows. It is this ability to talk about someone else. And here's where the gospel comes to play. Where the conqueror begins to come in. Because many times when I'm in those situations, I will say... That if you shouldn't say it to their face, then you shouldn't say it in, when they're not around. But I was reading a book the other day, a wonderful book called Gospel Fluency by a man named Jeff Vanderstelt. And he also talked about how in this issue of gossip, in the issue of gossip that the person is not there to defend themselves about the wrongs you're accusing them of. And he said this, every one of us are like this because we should be and are accused at the throne room of heaven about our wrongs all the time. And yet, Jesus is our advocate. And what does he do? He doesn't say they're not guilty. He says they're guilty and I've paid the price. He defends us in the midst of even their actual guilt. So rewind the tape. If someone is guilty and you're tempted to talk about them, may we act like Jesus and defend the person. Be their advocate rather than participating in tearing someone down who is not around. Pharisees shame. Pharisees are more aware of other people's sin than they are of their own. And Pharisees miss the joy of the good news 
that they too need forgiveness. This is the first lesson that Jesus teaches us through the Pharisee. And that is this. Many times we don't see our own need for forgiveness. The Pharisee didn't see his need. Jesus is going to expose his need here in a second. But the Pharisee didn't see it. And so may we be careful. May we be careful about being aware of everybody else's need for forgiveness. And yet may be subtly blinded to our own. And may we be protected from shaming other people. Because most of us rearrange our entire lives because we hate shame. And that leads us into the next one. The next story. The next person in the story. And that is this dear woman. This dear woman in verse 37. It says, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was in this man's house, she makes a beeline there with an alabaster flask. This was a, a precious like stone that held usually perfume. And she would bring it in, and she stood behind his feet, and she began to weep. Now here is what is shocking. Shame doesn't draw near. Shame hides. We see it in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve are exposed as sinners, what do they do? They run and hide. And God says, where are you? Not because he didn't know where they were, but because they needed to confess with their mouths their transgression. This is what is the need for every one of us. It is the owning of guilt. And it is the refusal to hide. But many of us live as hiders. If you have children, you have been with these children and you have seen them hide because of many things. Well, first of all, children play hide and seek. So they get some good practice at it. But that's not the kind of hiding I'm talking about. It's the kind of hiding that when they know they've done something wrong and you see all the wrong that has been done, but you can't find them. There is a massive mess and they're nowhere to be found. Or have you ever confronted a child and said, did you do this? And then, boom, they duck their face into their pillow. <laughs> or they take their shirt and they do the turtle and they hide right behind their shirt. You can't see them. Why do they do that? Well, let me tell you, it's embranded upon everything that we would hide. Here's another example. Came home this week. We have a dog. It's a bulldog. My bulldog is a precious little dog. We keep her behind the gate while we're away. We never let her go upstairs. She's always on the first floor. And when we come home, we open the gate, and she's able to kind of just walk around and stuff. Well, she had been such a good dog. We decided 
we're going to leave for just a few hours. She'll be fine. Just kind of roaming downstairs. She's done it before. Been a champ. We come home, walk into the downstairs. There's no dog. Where's the dog? So they start yelling, Josie! Jaden, my second to oldest, 13-year-old, gets to the, the middle of the steps and looks around the corner. There's the puppy at the top of the steps. And immediately, the dog goes, and takes off. So Jaden goes to find the dog. Where did the dog go? Goes into the laundry room and gets about this high off the ground, burying its head like this right here. And he said, Josie. And then she gets up and she runs again into another room. And then by that time, my wife is upstairs. My wife is hilarious because she can get really firm but be not angry at all. Josie, what do you do? And the dog just literally made the noise and hid the head. What is that? Branded upon every human heart. Branded even on dogs, apparently. Is the issue of when I do wrong, I hide. How do we hide? It could be ducking our head in a pillow. It could be pulling our shirt over our head. But usually when you, you know, reach puberty and beyond, you stop doing some of those things, at least this one probably. <laughs> if you don't, maybe we should talk later. But um, what do you do? You do what Adam and Eve did. You blame because you can't handle the indictment. And if you don't blame, then you try to overcome the feeling of guilt by doing something to help you forget about it. So you'll watch TV, you'll eat food, you'll try to numb it with some relationship. How many times have you done something wrong? And just to try to shake it, you just pick up the phone and try to call somebody else and not even talk about that, but just try to distract yourself. You invest yourself in a relationship. It is because we cannot handle the truth. But what Jesus invites us into is that the owning of the truth sets you free. You will never be set free from slavery until you admit that you're enslaved. And you will never be set free in general until you admit you're bound. And this woman right here doesn't go and hide. She comes full force, full bore, tears pouring to the feet of her Savior. Why tears? Why weeping? Because sin is horrible. And she felt it. And because Jesus is wonderful. And she saw it. It's tears of sorrow mixed with tears of thankfulness that there is a conquering king who offers forgiveness. She knew it. But the only way she would receive this forgiveness was not to duck and hide. Not to hide behind self-righteousness, which the Pharisee was doing. But to admit her wrongs and to bow her face at the feet of Jesus. This week, I was reading in Psalm 8. We have a Bible reading thing that we're, many people in the church are doing, Habits of Grace. And we're reading through the Psalms, and they've been grouped by certain uh, subject matters. And I landed at Psalm 8, and this is what I read. 
Psalm 8, verses 1, and then 3 and 4, it says this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. And when I read that, I literally just stopped. Because when I read verse 1, I was like, what's he so excited about? Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You know, when I'm in my normal days, I'm not just going around, oh, lording. You know, I'm not just kind of, you know, erupting. But there are times when something hits the heart and it is, Yes, I'm thankful. There was a celebration. Here, the psalmist is celebrating. Why? He's celebrating because we're told in verse 4 that God is mindful of him. That God sets his mind upon the psalmist. And that leads him to celebration. Now, why, why is that? If you think you're good, as a Pharisee does, and you're righteous in and of yourself, it won't mean very much that God is mindful of you. But if, on the other hand, you are clearly aware of your unworthiness, then all of a sudden, the fact that a holy God who should not be looking upon sin would be mindful of you, and then he defines that, the Son of Man, that you care for him. That means if he set his mind upon you, you don't flow out of his mind. You stay there, and he cares for you. It's astounding. And so, friends, honestly, what we need in this moment is to be more guilty in order to receive Deeper joy in forgiveness. We need to be convinced that we are more guilty than our neighbor. That we are sinful. There is a list that is a mile long, friends. We have been lustful, angry, forgetful of him, indifferent to him, jealous, anxious, and therefore not trusting him. We've been greedy. We've been deceitful. We've been self-promoting. We have craved control and been angry at others when they've tried to get it or at God when he hasn't delivered in our timing. We have tried to take back our surrender. And friends, more than likely, that entire list could characterize us just this week. I'm not talking about the list of sins from, when, from the beginning. And now just process it. Just process it with me. If one person did one of those things to you this week, what would be the response? At minimum, you would be hurt. And that hurt would lead you to distance yourself from that person who was maybe greedy and took things from you or who lied to you. You would distance yourself from that person. At worst, and we see it all the time, you explode at them, and maybe you even cut the relationship off, or you seek revenge upon them. 
That's our response. God's response should be 10,000 times worse. And honestly, in some senses, it would be the same in that it should be cut off. But the psalmist knew there was a different storyline. He knew there was a different storyline. It was a storyline that's even captured in the Psalms that there would come a son. A son who would die in the place of sinners. Who would take the shame and the guilt upon his shoulders. Treated as a sinner, although not a sinner at all. And he died the death that we deserved. And he took every bit of that shame and estrangement. The relationship that we should have that should be cut off. His relationship between his father and him was cut off. And he experienced it all. The wrath that the father should pour out upon sin. He experienced it in our place. And he rose from the dead to say, I am a conqueror. I have overcome the grave, and I alone can forgive your sins. And now, what the psalmist says makes sense. Who am I? But who are you that you are mindful of me? What is man? This is the feeling that we need. Why me? Many of us say, why me, when bad things come. But we rarely say, why me, that God is kind to us, that any good things come at all. Every ounce of good that comes our way is from a merciful God who has chosen to kill his own son so that he could be just and still pour out his love upon you. Be loved, church. Feel loved. He is mindful of you. You don't get off of his mind. He doesn't get overloaded or overwhelmed he cares for you and this precious woman in this passage didn't know everything but she knew this that the only way to deal with my shame is to get near to that man the only way is to not blame somebody else to not self-righteously lift myself up but to be honest, I am enslaved. And friends, right now in this moment, some of you need to pull out your phones, you need to get out that bulletin, you need to get a piece of paper, and you need to be honest with yourself in this moment and say, I am enslaved to that. Because you will not experience the joy that the conqueror brings until you say that. The path to freedom can never happen until you acknowledge that you are trapped. You're addicted. You are guilty. And some of the most freeing words you can say is, I am guilty. I have done wrong. Take it even a step further. And if I really knew my heart to the degree that God does, I'm 10,000 times worse than I think I am. I'm guilty. And then you're low. You're where that precious woman was, right? 
the woman of the city, the sinner, she's weeping on her face. Hair has to be close to his feet. And she is wiping his feet with her tears and drying it with her hair. Anointing it because she is receiving forgiveness through repentance. And the reason we know this is because Jesus tells us a story. He tells us that story about two debtors, right? You see the debtors? One had 500 denarii. That's about 20 months wages. Almost two years worth of wages. Average income in Raleigh, 65, 70,000, 140 grand. The other is 50 denarii, two months wages. Big difference. Maybe $10,000. What do you do? Jesus says, it's a simple question. He asks the Pharisee, who will be more thankful? Who? What does he say in verse 42? When they could not pay the debt, he canceled them both. Now, which one of them will love him more? I suppose the one who lost the larger debt. And he said, yes. And now, here's something that is necessary. And this is why I went where I went with Psalm 8. Anyone who finds themselves in the camp of the Pharisee, more aware of someone else's sin than they are of their own, Jesus wants his ways to be shown right in front of you so that appropriate change can happen. The Pharisee needed to see his wrongs in order for the door to forgiveness to be opened for him. Where do we get that? Look at verse 44. He turned to the woman, talking to Simon. See this woman, Simon? This sinner is your teacher. Humble Pie 101. This woman you're indicting, you have a lot to learn from her. Three things. Entered the house, you gave me no water for my feet. That was customary. That you would give water. We see it in John 13 when Jesus washes his disciples' feet in a basin of water. You wipe the feet because of dusty roads. She wiped his feet with her tears and her hair. Verse 45 You gave me no kiss. Kiss was a regular greeting for men to give to men on the cheek regularly. And this was a regular greeting. And she has not stopped. Kissing my feet. Verse 46. You did not anoint my head with oil. Which was a sign of setting apart that one who was special. An acknowledgement of holiness. But she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you. Her sins are forgiven. Which are many. Because she loved much. Why, was, why were her sins forgiven? We see at the very end, verse 50 says this. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. This is the beautiful interplay of faith and love in the scriptures. A saving faith is a faith that, a faith that loves Jesus. 
And a saving faith will produce the fruit of love, which is what he is talking about. The fruit of love did not save her. It was her faith that Jesus alone could take away her sins. That's what saved her. But if that was at the core, the fruit that came off of the tree was that she loved Jesus. And so, what do we have? We have the shamed repenting and receiving forgiveness according to verse 47. Who's the third character? The third character is the conqueror of shame. He stuck his head into the first two points and here we just want to end with him. The conqueror of shame. The point here is forgiveness has been won. And if it's been won by him, it's not earned by you. I'll say it again. Forgiveness has been won. And if it has been won by him, it's not earned by you. It's not the performance. If it were the performance, the shamer would win all day long. It's the brokenness. It's the admission of guilt. And we run to the conqueror. The conqueror of sin who overcame the adversity of leaving glory, overcame the adversity of the cross, was set free through the suffering of death and raised to new life. I actually love watching basketball. I've been watching the NBA playoffs here recently. And I have been fascinated by this one story of Isaiah Thomas. Isaiah Thomas is, I grew up with another Isaiah Thomas, played for the Pistons a long time ago, but this Isaiah Thomas plays for the Celtics, and he is short. He is 5'10", playing among 6'9", 6'10", and every time he's out there, I just think he is going to get that ball knocked down his throat every time he throws it up, and it is just unbelievable to watch this guy play. But right before the playoffs started, his sister died. And the storyline in watching the Celtics play shifted away from basketball a little bit to how will Isaiah Thomas make it with the massive grief of his sister. And it was in the game that they needed to go over the top and to beat the Bulls. Isaiah Thomas scored 53 points and they ended up winning that game ultimately sealing the series and that story just made my heart just like yes I don't care if you're a Celtics fan or not I like seeing that why why did I like that I liked that when faced with adversity there was a sense that he overcame and he was victorious it's such a small picture but there are so many pictures in everyday life that point us to something greater. And our Savior, the book of Luke tells us, walked the road of Calvary. He died, was crucified, abandoned by his Father, crushed for our iniquities, made fun of by people who deserve the judgment that he received, and he died in their place that they might be forgiven. And his last words are, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It is finished. And he was raised from the dead. 
And he conquered sin, Satan, and death. He conquered your shame so that you don't have to run and hide. You don't have to blame. You can be honest before him like the dear woman was who came and washed his feet. And he is saying this. The Pharisees didn't like it. He is saying, I am God and I can forgive your sins. It has been won. It has been conquered. And they ask this question in verse 49. Who is this man? And that's the question I ask of you today. It's the question that we are meant to ask. Who is this man? He is the man that wants you to come to him today and not forget him. He's the man that's not afraid of your mess, but invites you in to share everything with him. He's the man that promises that he will never leave you. He's the man that says you're never off of his mind and he loves you. He's the man who says that I've got a good plan for you and I'm always doing good to you. His name is Jesus and the invitation is be like the woman who was ashamed, who in her shame did not hide but ran to the feet of Jesus so that she might be forgiven. May God protect us from being shamers and putting others down in order to feel better about ourselves. But may he also protect us from soaking in our shame and self-condemnation. For Jesus isn't delighted in that either. He delights in you being set free. So may we answer that question. I am guilty of what? Own it. In order that you might be set free from this one. Who is this one? He's the conqueror of shame and guilt. Let's pray. Father, you are so precious. And I just ask God that there would be a fresh wave of your Holy Spirit. That takes this good word. And drives it deep down in the heart. I pray that right now, O oh God, that you would help us. Help us to rehearse who you are. You are a conqueror. You are love. And how do we know that you are love? Because of the cross. And so who are we in light of the cross? We are now because of forgiveness of sins, because of our repentance because of your work in our place, we are children. We are adopted. We are loved. And so, Lord, we ask that we would produce the fruit of love. Not in order that we might shame others. Not in order that we might be self-righteous. But that we would produce the fruit of love that only you can work within us. A love that transforms us and a love that transforms others. Set many free today, I pray. Just through the simple step of acknowledging and turning and coming to you. For you say, repent of your sins, turn again, and times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. That's what we're asking for in these moments, God. Refresh us. Forgive us that we might be reconciled to you and be in your presence 
and enjoy fellowship that is intimate and only growing.